Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to air your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. Welcome to Politics Done Right from the studios of KPFT 90.1 FM Houston, your community radio station. We have a great program for you today. Today's program, Obama and Merkel, Workers Revolt, Goldfield Governor, Senator Fierce Trump, Manchin, Holden Hospital. Hi, folks. We're going to have a great program for you today. Claudia Clark talks about the Obama-Merkel relationship, and she goes into detail on that in her new book. Republicans continue to fail. They continue to fear Trump. They continue to misguide and mislead about the good old COVID crisis. I don't say good old lightly, but I want to see some of how their thinking, their machinations actually work. We're also going to talk about Manchin holding the entire country hostage because he doesn't want any sort of progressive values that may somehow infer that the corporatocracy will finally have to pay their fair share of taxes. But before we go there, I want to thank Joseph Malkinskowski, Mike Sherrill, Kenneth Jenkins, Bruce Pollard, and James uh, Matujer for being great supporters of Politics Done Right. We could not possibly support or continue this type of program and this type of research, this type of doing these things that we do as far as getting you the real story if we didn't have you providing that support. So please continue to support the entire Pacifica network and public networks in general, because that is the only way that we are going to be able to do what we need to do to ensure that all Americans are told the truth, that all Americans are well-informed, because an informed America ensures that they vote their Interests. You can get Politics Done Right Mondays through Fridays on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash politics done right. On YouTube Live at politics done right.com slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter for updates. My handle is at Egberto Willis at E G B E R T O W I L L I E S. Before you get started, please remember to keep your community radio station. In your minds, KPFT in your minds. Talk about it. Tell your friends about it. Tell them you know about this station in town, 90.1 FM Houston, that needs your support, that is there to provide what? That nourishment that we need. 713-526-5738. KPFT.org. Visit us online. Contribute online. KPFT. 90.1 FM. You can visit us at kpft.org. 
It's striketober. What does that really mean? It seems like workers are feeling empowered. And what are they doing? They're going out there and they're saying, you treat me right, you pay me right, you do me right, or bye-bye. And that is what that is a power that workers must should have in a true society, right? Anyhow, um, you know, there, there's a tie-in between worker power and what's occurring in the Build Back Better bill with what Joe Manchin is doing as he carries the water for the corporate structure. I'm going to explain that in a minute. I want you to first listen to Farid Zakaria, and then we'll go ahead and take it on the other side, because what he has to say has a lot of importance to corporate America and what they want to continue doing. Check this out. We'll take it on the other side. Most workers in the U.S. are not unionized, so they may not be inclined to organize a strike. But that doesn't mean they can't walk off their jobs. And indeed, the latest job data shows that a record 4.3 million workers quit their jobs in August. And it's not just August. Since April, an average of about 4 million workers have quit their jobs every month. It is a trend economists have called the Great Resignation. It's difficult to overstate how extraordinary this is. As Carl Smith notes in Bloomberg, the scale of resignations this year is beyond anything on record. Many believe it echoes what we're seeing with the strikes. Workers seem to be unhappy with long hours low pay, and generally poor working conditions. And a record number of job openings gives them the freedom to demand more or walk away. This phenomenon has inspired panic in some employers who are desperate for workers. There are fears that the shortage will hurt small businesses or that a rise in wages would make business less competitive in general. But these fears are misplaced. These trends are actually good news, especially for American workers who are in dire need of good news. As the MIT professor David Order recently recently wrote in the Times, the U.S. economy has long been plagued by a glut of bad jobs. Take a look at pay. Low-skilled American workers are some of the lowest paid in the industrialized world. They make almost one-third less per hour than their counterparts in Canada. Low-skilled Norwegian workers are paid more than twice as much. But pay isn't the only problem. MIT's author writes, American workers also receive less notice and severance when they're fired compared to workers in other wealthy countries. They take less vacation. Unlike their peers in most other rich countries, they don't have guaranteed paid parental leave. Order says that the labor shortages we're seeing, the record job openings alongside record resignation, are a market phenomenon that compels companies to improve on some of these policies to attract workers. We've already seen this in terms of pay. Average hourly earnings for workers have risen by more than a dollar in the past year. That's not just good for workers, it's also good for the economy. That's because since the dot-com era of the 1990s, worker productivity has stagnated. But in the past year, productivity growth has picked up significantly, in part because employers are compelled to invest more in the workers they've got. A more productive workforce is actually good for competition. And if this trend continues long-term, it could boost the economy's growth. Finally, a glut of open positions gives workers the leverage to expand Many workers have left their jobs to start their own businesses, and a rise in entrepreneurship would add some much-needed dynamism to the American economy. So striketober and the Great Resignation may look chaotic, but this is just the kind of chaos the American economy needs. And it's important to note, so why is it that Joe Manchin and all these, uh, some of these, all the Republicans, Joe Manchin and a few, they don't want family leave. They don't want all these policies that will actually help their, uh, their, their, that would actually help their people, right? Hey, that green screen is coming through. But here, here's the deal. Here's the real deal. 
they don't want the American worker to have any sort of incentive to stay home if these employers don't want to pay them their worth. That's the whole idea behind objecting to build back better. They don't want more taxes. They don't want any policies that somehow adversely affect business or cost business more. So what they want to do is they want to say, we want to make life so hard for you. We don't want to have any form of social state that gives you any advantages over anything that will somehow cause you to think twice before taking any job. Look, what we need is exactly what we're starting to have. Good job, good job, Farid Zakaria, for pointing this out. And employers, you want employees, do them right. Our, I'll go to our last video to just show the stupidity. And this one, Hayes, uh, Eric Hayes, you should understand quite well. Uh, take a listen, and then we'll take it from there. Last week, you admitted that businesses imposing their own vaccine, vaccine mandates are effective in getting vaccine rates up. You also said you're, quote, a defender of the employer's right to provide a healthy workplace, unquote, if they decide to impose those. Now, I understand you are not comfortable with the government, whether state or federal, imposing mandates on businesses. But wouldn't you be saving lives if you imposed a vaccine mandate on state employees who ultimately work for you? Well, it would it would probably increase vaccination rates. Uh, but it also would increase uh, the resistance of some. Some would lose their job. It would hurt their families. And uh, it would, in the broader population, also uh, create that controversy and resistance. So it's a balance there, and that's why private businesses should have the opportunity. The If they want to require a vaccination in their sensitive workplace, they ought to be able to do that. But government doesn't need to tell them to do that. I'm for reducing mandates across the board uh, in regard to the vaccinations. People will make the right decision over time when they get the right information. And so, sure, uh, Tyson's uh, have required vaccination. Their rate goes up. Others uh, are urging it to happen in their workplace. It goes up there as well. And so I think it's a balance. But what works in Arkansas is not the mandate side of it, but it's the education side uh, and businesses having the prerogative to make their own decision without the government telling them what to do. Arkansas requires children entering schools to be vaccinated for diphtheria, tetanus, uh, pertussis, polio, measles, mumps, rubella, hepatitis B, hepatitis A, chickenpox. Once it is fully approved by the FDA, would it save lives if you added the COVID vaccine to this list for mandatory vaccines for children? Uh, look at that more deeply. First of all, uh, those are state-by-state state vaccine requirements. And so the federal government has never mandated what happens in the states? No, and the I'm asking Those you. State by state decisions. Yeah, I'm, I'm just talking well, about what and, what and Arkansas mandates, and these are these are Arkansas mandates. Absolutely, and so there may be a time in the future that you would want to mandate that in the schools, but that time is not now. Uh, we need to have more experience with that. Uh, we need to have more public acceptance of it, uh, of the vaccine. And so it could happen down the road. It also depends upon the severity of the uh, COVID outbreak and whether the cases skyrocket again or not. Right now, they're at a, a very low level in Arkansas. And so 
uh, it can happen. It may happen, but now is not the right time to do that. We need to know more information and to be able to build public confidence to a greater uh, point. But it is a state decision. I want to show you Roy Blunt, somebody turning themselves into pretzels to support Donald Trump, to lie about progressives and to move on. Let's go ahead and get busy. Let me set it up right so I don't get the wrong channels. This one I had to put together. Uh, let me set it up a bit. Roy Blunt is a, is a seasoned politician, a seasoned senator. One would think that he should not fear Donald Trump. One would think that he could actually come out with statements that promote republicanism and at the time protect democracy by, give, by taking on what the host has told them about Donald Trump. Check it out, then we'll take it on the other side. The insurrection took place on November 3rd, Election Day. January 6th was the protest. Was Election Day an insurrection? You know, I think the election was what it was. There's a process you go through that determines whether or not the early uh, reports were the right reports. And we went through that process. And uh, I'm, I'm of the view that the best thing that the President Trump could do to help us win majorities in 2022 is talk about the future. And he can be an important part of that this 22 effort, uh, but I think better off to talk about the future than to focus on uh, the past in every election. Every election should be about the future, and I think that's what this next one's going to be about. Well, he still this week was making these false election claims on Thursday. Arizona should decertify their fake election results immediately. Also Thursday, they, the Biden administration, are only really good at two things, rigging elections and misinformation. So he's still talking about the past. And a lot of Republicans, a lot of Republican leaders in in the House, other members of the Senate are standing with him on this. Doesn't the party have to disavow the challenge to the election in order to you know, go forward. You know, I think uh, President Biden and the Democrats are giving us plenty of things to talk about. We don't need to keep focusing on on. But the Republicans past. are. Republicans keep talking about well, the past. Well, I'm not. And, and I, don't think, I don't think many Republicans in the Senate are. I think we're talking about bad tax policies, bad environmental policies, uh, bad uh, take uh, national takeover of the election process. There, there are plenty of things for us to talk about. And I, I think we're talking about them. I'm there, I'm there every day. And I hear Republicans concerned, as they should be, about this the process that the Democrats are going through. But they're also denying the reality of January 6th. Republicans refusing the commission, not joining the the House Select Committee. Uh, Steve Bannon, only nine Republican House votes to punish him for violating a House subpoena. Well, you know, I think a lot of this discussion is obviously driven by the media, just like this is here today. We could be talking about Senate rules. We could be talking about tax policy. Well, we if could Republicans be talking about these new entitlement reality, policies. It's, it's not the media that's, uh, you know, going against the reality of what happened on January 6th. It was the worst attack on our government, on our democracy since the Civil War. Oh, I agree with that. In fact, on January the 20th, I was at the podium at the Capitol chairing the inauguration 
inauguration and that trans that peaceful transition of power that we saw that day is one of the most important things we do. And uh, I was able to chair the inauguration four years earlier and four years later, it was the same important message we sent to the world. And I think we effectively did that. Well, to that point, if the former president keeps denying the reality of the uh, the election and of Joe Biden being the president, should that disqualify him from being a candidate as he suggests he wants to be in 2024? We know there are constitutional provisions about being a candidate and having opinions that other people may not agree with is not one of those provisions. He can be a candidate if he wants to be. But again, I think what President Trump could do that would be most helpful right now would be a focus on the policies that aren't working. Uh, you know, his policies at the border were working. His regulatory policies he- were working. His tax policies were working. Uh, but we see that those policies for Democrats with these narrow majorities they have aren't working. I hope that's where he focuses. But, uh, I, you know, I don't manage his time. I or know, his, but if or he doesn't comments. concede the election, would you support him in 2024? Well, the election for 2020 is over. Uh, I'm focused on 2022, and it's a long time between now and 2024. He has uh, basically excommunicated Liz Cheney from the party, as has Kevin McCarthy, uh, primarying her and all the rest, just for trying to investigate what really happened. What was the conspiracy behind January 6th? Uh, Do you think there's a place in the Republican Party for Liz Cheney? Uh, you know, I think uh, Wyoming voters are going to decide if there's a place for her in the House or not. But the, it's a it's a broad party with uh, lots of things we ought to be focusing on. I think, again, uh, what defines the future of the Republican Party is how we react to the debate that's going on right now. Uh, Democrats are having an incredibly hard time getting where they'd like to be. You know, they've decided uh, that they've got a mandate when there's clearly no mandate. The Senate couldn't possibly be closed. Closer. The House majority is the closest Democrats have had in 170 years. And frankly, the only thing that Joe Biden and Donald Trump agreed about in 2020 was they both wanted the election to be all about Donald Trump. There is no mandate. Uh, pretending you do is going to have real consequences well, in both 22 and 24. Let me- now, before I go into any basics there. Uh, Andrew Mitchell, why didn't you push back when he, when he, the new phrase that Republicans are using? And I want everybody to be aware of this. This is very important because they, uh, they know how to use phraseology. The national takeover of elections is what they're calling bills to avoid voter suppression, voter fraud, and, ta- and having local officials overturn local elections, okay, or national elections. Remember, the bills in Congress are to prevent overthrow of the the popular, what people have voted for, to prevent voter fraud, and to prevent uh, people, to prevent all this voter suppression that Republicans are doing in 26 states. By allowing these people to come onto TV and call it nationalizing elections, uh, you, you, you do a disservice to Americans because they start to use that nomenclature. They start to use that narrative. And that's the false narrative. The voter bills is a bill that Republicans and Democrats alike have always voted on in order to protect the American voter. Now what they're trying to institute is a form of fascism. Now, also, she never pushed back when he said Trump's tax policy worked. Really? 
All the taxes went to the wealthy and to corporations who used it to buy back stock that made the wealthier wealthier as their capital gains increased because of said tax buyback. Um, when it comes to tariffs, guess who paid the tariffs? The poor people. When their, when their semiconductors and all these things went up in prices, who paid it again? It wasn't, it, the tax came into the coffers, but it was paid for by the American people. No pushback. That's what I'm talking about. But you know, you see how they're attacking, oh, Republicans are, I mean, Democrats are fighting among each other. But when these clowns come on TV and spill, they sound like they're sensible. We've allowed it. We've got to stop that. That is what, that is why you have a politics done right, to pull the crap out of what these people say. A message to Joe Manchin. It is, Joe Manchin just came out and gave a press conference. Everybody thought the press conference was going to be out to say, we finally got an agreement on the infrastructure bill as well as the Build Back America bill where we get all the necessary social programs that have been neglected for decades after decades after decades. But instead, he comes out and he says, there's no way that the progressives holding this bill hostage will somehow allow him to vote for the bill. Let me tell you something. There's only one person. Progressives are not holding the infrastructure bill hostage. What we have here is Joe Manchin holding America hostage. Working class America hostage. That is what we're looking at. He comes and he says, the bill as it is today is not, it has smoke and mirrors and that eventually it's not going to be $1.7 trillion, but $3.4 trillion. Did he ever say that about any energy bill that's passed, about any energy infrastructure that puts out there that year after year as they pollute the environment, that somehow the companies that he represents, the oil companies, the coal companies, that they get the things that they want. You never hear that. You never hear a peep out of that. He says that they are not negotiating in good faith. Who is not negotiating in good faith? Remember, important to discuss. 48 senators support the bill. We need 50. That two senators think they are more important than 48 and they are willing to let the president's bill go down the drain because two out of 48, 96% of the people are for the bill, but you are not for it, so it's not going to happen. You said the progressives want to either have it their way or the highway. Progressives and moderates support it. 96% of them. It is just two of you that are giving trouble. Who is actually saying it's my way or the highway? Folks, don't allow a snow job and the media to take this up and make it seem as if progressives and Democrats are in disarray. They're not. Two senators are holding America hostage. Listen to what he had to say, and then we'll finish it at the other end. I've heard a lot of the mischaracterizations of my position since the president met with the House Democrats last Thursday, and I would like to make an attempt to clear up any confusion about where I stand on the legislation that's working its way through Congress. In all my years of public service, and I've been around for a long time, I've never seen anything like this. The president of the United States has addressed the House Democratic Caucus twice recently. 
to urge action on the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which sometimes we refer to as the BIF bill. Last week, the Speaker urged, Speaker Pelosi urged the importance of voting and passing the BIF bill before the President took the world stage overseas. And still no action. In my view, this is not how the United States Congress should operate or, in my view, has operated in the past. The political games have to stop. Twice now, the House has balked at the opportunity to send the BIF legislation to the president. As you've heard, there are some House Democrats who say they can't support this infrastructure package until they get my commitment on the reconciliation legislation. It is time to vote on the BIF bill, up or down, and then go home and explain to your constituents the decision you made. And I've always said, if I can't go home and explain it, I can't vote for it, and if I can, I, I will. I've worked in good faith for three months, for the past three months, with President Biden, Leader Schumer, Speaker Pelosi, and my colleagues on the reconciliation bill, and I will continue to do so. For the sake of the country, I urge the House to vote and pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Holding this bill hostage is not going to work in getting my support for reconciliation bill. Throughout the last three months, I've been straightforward about my con concerns that I will not support a reconciliation package that expands social programs and irresponsibly adds to our $29 trillion in national debt that no one seems to really care about or even talk about. Nor will I support a package that risks hurting American families suffering from historic inflation. Simply put, I will not support a bill that is this consequential without thoroughly understanding the impact that it'll have on our national debt, our economy, and most importantly, all of our American people. Every elected representative needs to know what they are voting for and the impact it has, not only on their constituents, but the entire country. That is why we must allow time for complete transparency and analysis on the impact of changes to our tax code and energy and climate policies to ensure that our country is well positioned to remain the superpower of the world while we inspire the rest of the world towards a cleaner environment. And this all can be done. I, for one, won't support a multi-trillion dollar bill without greater clarity about why Congress chooses to ignore the serious effects of inflation and debt that have on our economy and existing government programs. For example, how can I in good conscience vote for a bill that proposes massive expansion to social programs when vital programs like Social Security and Medicare face insolvency and benefits could start being reduced as soon as 2026 in Medicare and 2033 in Social Security? How does that make sense? And I don't think it does. Meanwhile, elected leaders continue to ignore exploding inflation, that our national debt continues to grow, and interest payments on the debt will start to rapidly increase when the Fed has to start raising interest rates to try to slow down this runaway inflation. With the factors in mind, and all of these factors that we've spoken about, I've worked in good faith for months with all of my colleagues to find a middle ground on a fiscally, and I, report, I repeat that, a fiscally responsible piece of legislation that fixes the flaws of the 2017 Trump tax bill that I thought was weighted far, far too far for the high-end earners and the needs of the American families and children. However, as more of the real details outline the basic framework are released, what I see are shell games, budget gimmicks that make the real cost of the so-called $1.75 trillion bill estimated to be 
almost twice that amount if the full time is run out. If you extended it permanently, and that we haven't even spoken about. This is a recipe for economic crisis. None of us should ever misrepresent to the American people what the real cost of legislation is. While I've worked hard to find a path to compromise, it's obvious compromise is not good enough for a lot of my colleagues in Congress. It's all or nothing, and their position doesn't seem to change unless we agree to everything. Enough is enough. It's time our elected leaders in Washington, all of us, stop playing games with the needs of the American people and holding a critical infrastructure bill hostage. While there's opportunity in the reconciliation of bill that we can all agree on, and we've been talking about this for months. Again, to be clear, I will not support the reconciliation legislation without knowing how the bill will impact our debt and our economy and our country. And we won't know that until we work through the text. For the sake of our country, I again, and I am urging all of my colleagues in the House to vote and pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill. It's bipartisan, 69 votes. We worked on that for many, many months. As I've said before, holding that bill hostage is not going to work to get my support of what you want. It's what we should all agree on and work through the process. I'm open to supporting a final bill that helps move our country forward, but I'm equally open to voting against a bill that hurts our country. And I've been very clear about that also. And most importantly, hurts every American. Let's work together, and I mean that. Let's all work together on getting a sensible reconciliation package, a package that really strengthens our nation and makes us better and leads the world. Thank you all. Now, if you listen to what Joe Manchin had to say there, can he read, does that, does what he said really make any sense? It makes absolutely no sense. Here's what I think we should ultimately do. No, you don't get the, the, the Build Back Better bill, meaning the social program, the social infrastructure done. No bipartisan bill, period. And why do we say no bipartisan bill, period? Because once again, we asked progressives and people who haven't voted because they believe their vote never matters. We asked them to vote in 2020. We asked them to vote in 2018. They came out in 2018. They came out in 2020. What do they have to show for it? At a bipartisan infrastructure bill that helps just the same people that always get the help. It is time to end it. It's all or nothing. We all rise together or we fall together. Which one would you prefer? Claudia Clark is the author of the upcoming book just released yesterday, Dear Barack, The Extraordinary Partnership of Barack Obama and Angela Merkel. Disruption Books, October 19, 2021, is the one publishing it. She received her Bachelor's of Arts degree in History and Public Policy from Michigan State University. She was the president of the College Democrats at Michigan State and was active in Amnesty International Now and pro-choice groups. Clark holds a Master's of Arts in Labor and in Industrial Relations from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, a Master's in U.S. History with an emphasis on women's history from San Jose State University and a Master's of Social Work MSW from the University of Michigan with an emphasis in community organizing. She and her husband resides in Berlin, Germany, where all where she's previously served as national get out the vote go tv coordinator for the democrats abroad 
the Germany chapter. Welcome to Politics Done Right, Claudia. How are you doing? Good, thanks. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, I mean, actually, um, uh, when all this was happening in Germany, the new the new elections, etc., I kind of followed it with uh, with the expectation that we would start to see a curve away from what we have been seeing, not only here in the United States, but throughout the world on sort of a rightward move. What can you first tell me about the administration of Angela Merkel? Uh, Angela Merkel for the last, excuse me, 16 years has been the head of Germany's Christian Democratic Union or center-right party. And Initially, when she started, she was very, very, you know, she was on the, she was conservative. um, But as, as the years progressed, the longer she be, she was in office as chancellor, the more she moved her center right party to the, to the center. And so she did, she made a lot of policy decisions in the later years of her, her chancellorship, for example, opening the Syrian, uh, the German borders to Syrian refugees, to making, attempting to phase Germany away from using coal, that kind of thing. And that started, you know, in the late 2015 kind of time period. So Mm -hmm. And as she has done that, it has created a dichotomy in Germany because on the one hand, her party members were upset with her for moving the party too far to the right. And then, and I'm sorry, too far, her party members yeah. were concerned because too far to the left or center. And on the other hand, that the people from the liberal side still thought she was too conservative. So she was kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't. And it was interesting because she saw the writing on the wall in 2017 when she was elected for the fourth for her fourth term. While it is true she was she won re-election, it was her party did the worst that it had done since um, I think it was World War II, mm-hmm. and a lot of people were concerned because of some of her policies, and then. The following year in 2018, uh, you know, the other various German states, you know, Germany is made up of 16 Bundestag right. and and they had state elections and her party was taking a beating in that regard as well. Meanwhile, the the uh, the far right party, the AFD and the Greens were, were building momentum. And so she just she made the decision to step down after her term ended this this past September. And what's interesting is that, um, you know, we still don't know who's going to, who's going to be chancellor. We're, they're still kind of working out the details. But the, the candidate that was um, replaced her in the Christian Democratic Union, he took a, a, a really bad beating. He had done worse. Um, the Christian Democratic Union had done worse than, than they, they'd ever done. And um, some people some people think it was because of the quality of the candidate. I, I try to stay kind of neutral on, on what happened and having an opinion. Um, but I really think it's more than that. I think this is very typical. We see this in the United States, too. 16 years of having one party control a government, it's a long time. And and people want to change. And that was very evident um, as early as 2017. 
17 that people want to change. And so I'm not surprised that the, her party didn't do as well as expected. What I am surprised is, is how, how incredibly close it was, because I, I kind of expected it to be a landslide because things were showing, indicating that people want to change. They wanted and they wanted it in a drastic way. Well, would you have expected a landslide on the left side or the right side? I was expecting, um, I, I was expecting, it. we were hearing it pretty much on the left, on the left okay. side. And it looks like we are, it looks like the new chancellor will be uh, from this, uh, the center left party, the, the um, right, the social, social democrat. democrat. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But we, you know, but we don't know for sure. But, but not only that, but the way, you know, the German government works is that they, they, form a coalition, you know, the top, the parties that I think, the most I votes. think they have enough votes if they're social Democrats and the Green Party unite, right? Right. Yes. And, and the, and the holdout right now is, is the, the Free Democratic Party. And that's kind of the, they're the free market Right. Market party, they you know they don't believe in government regulation. It's kind of let the gov let the let the market. They're the neoliberals. And yeah, it, yeah, and and so it, it's looking like I'm I'm in the states now, but I'm you know I'm still trying to follow what's going on in Germany. But it looks like they're really close to forming a coalition between the, the three. And then when the way they form coalitions in in Germany is that they'll once they decide that they want to form a government together, then they choose. Uh, their chancellor, then what they do is they'll pick that they put a, a platform together and then they decide who is going to be um, cabinet positions from which party. From which party. So right. that all kind of comes together. Mm -hmm. I, I think that is a healthier uh, system anyway, because it gives a lot of opinions. It, it, it doesn't you, you don't have to be one or the other, because, you know, at the end, you can actually get a coalition put together that represents right. more than one brand. Yeah, like, you know, I, it's interesting because in the United States, it's kind of a winner take all thing. Exactly. And that I don't think is particularly fair. But the one thing that I think is really interesting about this is right after the, you know, in the days right after the election, there was, there were talks because the way the vote looked, the per, the central, the, the um, center left party, the C CPU, received the most votes, and then the then the CDU, and then the Green Party candidate, and then the FDP. So that was kind of the the right. ranking, and it looked like the the Green Party and the, the FDP, the Free Democratic Party. You know, so the people that came in third and fourth, they were going to decide with whom they wanted to form a coalition. Right? So were they going in? They were going to decide. Okay, is, who's going to be the new chancellor? Is it going to be Schultz from the from the left, or is it going to be Lashin from the right? And that was a little interesting because because it, it seemed like it should be the other way around. It should be okay. It it seemed like it should have been one of Schultz or Lashin deciding who with whom they wanted to work, but it right. was the other. You know, it's opposite. And and I think it's really interesting. And um. It, and in other words, you know, the minor point is we're the one picking who the winners are going to be, as opposed to these right, guys. Exactly. Saying, we are going to choose you and you to 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 come on the coalition. And and you know, and it's it's kind of counterintuitive because the voters had spoken, and the, based upon the voting, the voters wanted um, Schultz to be the the right. the, the chancellor. But it, but. It looks like there was a possibility because Lashin initially, I still don't think he has officially resigned yet. Right. But 
but it looked like, you know, despite what the voters wanted, these other people could still come in and decide that they wanted Lashett instead as chancellor. So it was kind of interesting and it's diff- counterintuitive to, to what we have in the States, but I do think it is definitely a lot healthier because I, this whole winner, winner take all thing that the United States has, you know, you, you win all, you know, all you need is 260 electoral votes right. and, and, but it's actually worse in the United States in that we don't really have a democracy. Two senators per state when a state have uh, yeah. half a million people and the other one has 50 million, 40 something million. It doesn't make any sense. OK, let's go ahead and talk about your book. What got you into writing that book, uh, uh, Barack, uh, the, the, the love affair between Barack and uh, Angela Merkel? Um, that's a complicated question. Um, I happen to, we're still living in the States at the time, and I happened to turn on the final press conference between Obama and Merkel in 2016, post-election. It was Obama's final trip to, to Berlin as a uh, as president. And I, re, I had been following Merkel's career because we knew, my husband and I knew at some point we were going to move to Germany. And I just remember Merkel being so visibly upset when a reporter asked her, what are you going to, you know, this is your last working relationship with one another in a formal capacity. What are you going to do? And Miracle just looks like she was about to cry, which is so atypical of her. And so I started thinking, okay, this is interesting. I want, we'll see what happens. And then I happened to watch the first encounter between uh, Merkel and Trump in um, March of 2017, and when Merkel visited Washington, and Trump would not even shake Merkel's hand, and right. it was you know total 180. And I then I learned that Obama was visiting Germany later that year in in May, for the it was the fifth 500th anniversary of Reformation, mm-hmm. and I learned that. Uh, Obama's very, very first trip overseas post-presidency was to Berlin to visit Merkel. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, there's something here. You know, there's something really interesting about their friendship. And at this point, we knew, my husband and I knew we were moving to Germany. I don't speak German, despite my best efforts. I I, (laughs) I have trouble with the language. Uh, So I knew I needed to do something that I constructive with my time. And I figured... I, you know, I, I'm concerned with what's going on in the world with Brexit and with the, the outright taking control in right. you know, Poland. And, and the the telling thing about Obama and America's relationship is they're from, for all intents and purposes, they're from different political parties. Right. But they put their differences aside and work together because they knew it was in the, be- the best interest. And so I thought this is a policy lesson. Other world leaders can learn from this that in today's globalized world, it's more it's more imperative now than it was in, since World War II, since the Cold War, that allied world leaders learn to work together. Mm-hmm. And while that's the case, you see on the other extreme, you've got more, you know, Trump and Brexit, you've got countries trying so hard to separate themselves to, because they think they're trying to keep their borders safe. And I actually think that's the worst approach because, you know, with wars no longer um, entail just invading another country militarily, but somebody can do a ter- plot a terrorist attack from their apartment in Belgium for for a bombing in in Paris, and it's imperative that world leaders be able to share intelligence and talk and communicate with one another. And I'm just concerned with what the toll 
and that things are, are taking the other direction. Yeah, absolutely. So now um, when you saw the relationship between Barack and uh, you said that he flew the first flight was to Germany. How was his reception? And uh, did they really play that up pretty big out there or? They made a big, big deal about it. Uh, they had they I think there were approximately 7000 participants that, that visited because what it was was it was an open forum where Obama and Merkel spoke with a couple of um, um clergy members mm -hmm. and some some other um, um, activists. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they had the forum and then you you looked at the you looked around the crowd and there were people who had signs saying, welcome back, Mr. President. And can we keep you, Mr. President? And do Berlin Berliner. So it was you could feel the, the momentum. And I moved to Germany in September of 2017. And the Germans, it really, I saw a lot of how the Germans liked Obama when I was doing my research, but since I've been here, it is, it is legitimate. They, people would, when they found, found out I was an American, they were, they would just ask me, why couldn't, no, could, why isn't Obama president anymore? Can he become president again? And then, you know, my broken German, I'm like, nine, you know, no. And then it's, well, why not? And so, you know, in my broken German, I have to try and tell them because our constitution won't allow it. Well, why is that? That's dumb. You know, so it really, it was the, the Germans absolutely loved him. And even now, uh, and so I, you know, and I think that played a large part in the relationship between Merkel and Obama is because she knew how popular he was. I still remember that uh, that huge thing that he had in Berlin. I think it was Berlin when he uh, when when he had that big thing in the park and thousands and thousands and thousands of people showed up to that. It was amazing. Yeah. Two, yeah. Two hundred thousand. Two hundred thousand people. Imagine that. And, that. and he wasn't even running for a place in Germany. But, you know, it's it's interesting that you said uh, Merkel and Obama was they were from two different parties, which is true based on the, the names of the parties. But ironically, right. places like England, uh, places like uh, Canada, Germany, they they their their center right look nothing like what we like to call center right. They believe in all these social programs that we yeah. need here in the United States. But we are called socialists for wanting them. Your thoughts on that? Right. Well, yeah, and, and I and when I talk to people, I'm very careful to say, technically speaking, they are from from different political parties. But you're not comparing apples to apples because right. the 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 Republican Party now in the United States it's not the it's not the conser fiscal conservative party of say Reagan. It is it has been taken over by 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 extremists and religious right wing, and it is just it is definitely not you know, the, the fiscal conservative and, and the free market, that is definitely not the case. So you know, it, I think that the Republican Party of today in the United States is almost equivalent to what is taking form in the rest of Europe right now. In Germany, you know, the, the AFD, which is stands for Alternative for Deutschland, and that's the anti-immigrant, that's the anti, you know, the, the anti-Semitism, that's, it's, it's building momentum in, in um, Germany, but it's but it's still a minority. And the 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 center right is a lot more. The center right in in Europe, not just Germany, but in Europe, is a lot more. It really truly is center, and it it, it is really difficult to try and compare 
apple compare political parties. Um, yeah, it is amazing. That is that is what I've noticed in in uh, in you know because you go to you know you 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 ask a conservative government in 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 England or or uh, or Merkel, uh, would you like to go ahead and change your healthcare system to a more free market based healthcare system? They'll say, "Are you crazy? The people won't allow yeah. that." You know, which is which yeah. is an interesting thing. Now, uh, as far as your your book is concerned, I know it was released yesterday. Um, how um, how what's the reception? Are you really getting getting it out there or? Yeah, I'm I'm pleasantly surprised at the reviews that that I'm getting. Getting, I shouldn't say surprised. I'm I'm excited about it because excited. That's the right one of the yeah. <laughs> one of the things I what I really wanted to focus on was the positive side. You know, I'm not you know, I'm disturbed at what's happening in terms of, of how negative and nasty things have gotten. Um, and in one, you know, one of the reviews I've gotten, you know, it was called a delightful because it was, you know, in a world where politics is often so scathing and so, mm-hmm. so nasty. I, I talk about how well they got along and, and yes, they had their differences, but despite their differences, they, they worked together and, and they, they learned from each other and they they helped one another and how it's a nice change of pace. And, and I think the, in, that's what we're, that's what people will need to see. Now, if you want, I make no bones about my disdain for Trump. But right. but Trump isn't my Trump wasn't the focus of the book. You know, I, I talk about Trump at the very, very end when I talk about how he managed to undermine everything Merkel and Obama had done together. Right. But I but my, the purpose of the book was not to bash Trump. It wasn't to bash Brexit. It was more of a this is how world leaders can can what can what they can accomplish when they there. put their mind to it, when they put democracy and the well-being of of society above their own personal beliefs or tastes. Now, uh, living in Germany and coming for some time now, I guess you lived in Germany for about three years or so, uh, from 17 to now, right? Uh, coming yeah, back to the we're United- still living in uh, How do you, uh, by the way, are, are you, is your husband German or uh, you just- no, we're, both Ameri- we're, we're both Americans and- oh, oh. There are a lot of reasons why we decided to move to Germany. I've got family there, but uh-huh. a lot of it was my husband was, you know, he's an engineer and he worked in Silicon Valley right. and, and he was tired of the hour work weeks. I, um, I got death threats from people because I supported the Affordable Care Act. Gotcha. Uh, and I just felt like I was a stranger in my own country. I, I felt my beliefs better aligned with what, those of the European Union. So let me ask you this. That is, that is amazing that you're saying that. And I, I'm interested because I, I, I've interviewed people that have uh, permanently relocated to Canada, permanently relocated to England, uh, UK, and now you to uh, your relocation to Germany. Are you becoming a German citizen as well or a German resident? How does that work? My husband has just permanent residence. I, because I came with him, he had, because he, he's had the work, Permit. I was able to come in with him, but he could get residency sooner than I could. And the minute he could actually qualify, we'd been here long enough and he had made enough money. He applied for residency. And we're we're talking about we have a couple more years before we can actually qualify 
for German citizenship. Right. And we would have to, Germany doesn't allow dual citizenship, so we would oh, have to give up. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. So Panama, where I'm from, we can be dual citizens. I didn't know that would then occur in Germany. Now, the interesting thing is with this recent election, one of the things the SPD does want to do, want to look at is granting dual citizenship. Right. So by the time we're eligible, and I think it's two or three more years, it might be a moot point and we might be able to do both. I'm I'm on the fence on whether I want to give up my U.S. citizenship. We have to we don't have we have to file U.S. taxes. So right. we have to file U.S. taxes and German taxes, you know, so it's a pain. Right. We don't. We don't really uh, one don't foresee going back to the United States. So right. my mean, position is I don't really care. Right. I just want to be able to vote, mm-hmm. and I can still you know I can't vote in Germany, but I still can vote in the United States. So. Right. Well, I mean, I mean I, the thing about it is you have time to think about it, and and if, if right. one doesn't have to give up a U.S. citizenship, you know you, you really don't. So if they change it, that's great. I I intend to keep both of my citizenships. I think there's value yeah. in, in that. Um, but that is great. Now, uh, we're coming close to the end. Uh, is there anything that you want to tell me uh, that I that I should have asked you that I didn't? Um, I think the the one thing that I that I would like to emphasize about that that about the book is that it is something that it provided an opportunity for two people who, who you know, skeptical um, of one another and how they went from being skeptical of one another to, you know, Miracle cried when she said goodbye to Obama for the final time. And you tell that to Germans and they're like, she did what? Because it is so, um, it is so uncharacteristic. Yeah, out of character. Right. And so I, you know, I think it's important for people in today's globalized world, as polarized as we are, you know, I'm a political activist myself. I spent my entire life being a political activist. And I understand more than anything, more than anyone, the fine line between selling out and compromise. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's very gray. And I think we've gotten to the point where nobody wants to work with someone from the other side right. because they don't want to be seen. And look at what it has gotten us. I and mean, we're having culture wars on a, a public health issue that should be resolved, but people have turned it into culture wars and political. And that is just silly and it's dangerous. And I think, you know, the lesson you can learn from, from Obama and Miracle is they didn't agree on a lot of things. They compromised. And and as a result, the Paris Climate Agreement was was signed, you know, the Iran nuclear. And we we need to get away from this. I'm not going to, you know, this person voted for a Republican, you know, this person went to an anti-gay church 20 years ago, so I'm not going to vote for them. Or I'm not going to work with, that's dangerous and that's getting us nowhere. And and so I think we need to shift the conversation back to saying it's okay to work with somebody from a different, it's okay to have differences of opinion. You work together and you compromise and that just isn't happening anymore. You know what, uh, Claudia, I think that is a great place to end. And I think that that sentiment is very important for all of us who are activists, activists, journalists, activists, writers, activists on the floor to actually take that into account. It's not a sellout to want to work with somebody that may be diametrically opposed to your beliefs. Thank you so kindly, Claudia Clark, author of the upcoming book, Dear Barack, The Extraordinary Partnership of Barack Obama and Angela Merkel goes read the book. It has 
great prescient information for you. Thank you so kindly, Claudia, for having been on Politics Done Right. Thank you so much for having me. Please remember to keep your community radio station in your minds. Keep KPFT in your minds. Talk about it. Tell your friends about it. 90.1 FM, Houston. They can listen as well at kpft.org. They can contribute to us at kpft.org. You can get Politics Done Right Mondays through Fridays on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash politics done right. On YouTube Live at politics slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter for updates. My handle is at Egberto Willis at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. Folks, we are at the end of the program. I hope you enjoyed what we had to offer. We will continue to give you fresh data, fresh programming every single week from Politics Done Right. My name is Egberto Willis. This is Politics Done Right. And you know how I end this baby. I am what? Out! Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to air your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to air your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage.